imposters to episode number 18 of the You're Not Qualified podcast. My name is Courtney Heater. I'm your host. I'm stoked that you're here. We are closing out on 20 episodes of the You're Not Qualified podcast. I am thrilled. This is so much fun meeting amazing people. I hope that you are inspired to go out there and do that thing as you're listening to this. And if this is your first episode, thank you for lending me your ear for an hour and welcome. We talk about basically people that are suffering from imposter syndrome and diving deep into why that is. And we chat with people who are traditionally not qualified for what they're doing, meaning they don't have the typical background, meaning that their age maybe doesn't align with what you would typically see in the industry, meaning they don't have the exact college degree, they don't have the master's degree or a PhD, but they're making waves in their chosen endeavor and changing the world for the better. And they are doing it confidently, well, from my view, a lot of people would probably argue with that, right? Because that's what imposter syndrome is. We are sneaking into spring here in the Northern Hemisphere. And the older I get, I'm the ripe old age of 33 over here, the more I appreciate the blooming of warmer weather and the longer days, all of that sun. I used to love the cold. I do still love the cold, but I find myself yearning for warmth a little bit more each year. Though, of course, there are some unseasonably warm days through the winter these days and bizarre weather that makes it feel like spring and summer, even in the dead of winter. You guessed it, folks. Welcome to another episode about climate change. You suck. Hey. Hey, come on. That stings. Who said that? We can't escape it. It impacts so many things, though, with a spin. Today, our guest, Ethan Brown, is the host of a comedy environmental podcast titled The Sweaty Penguin. Could not have thought of a better title myself. It is presented by PBS's national multi-platform climate initiative, Peril and Promise. So this is a hot podcast, guys. PBS sponsored. Ethan is 22 years old. I'm 10 years his senior, and he does have a bachelor's degree in environmental analysis and policy. Why is he unqualified, you asked? Well, I asked him the same thing because I was like, sir, I am not sure that you actually know that you are very qualified. But he convinced me that he indeed is not qualified. But of course, it's a spoiler alert that uh, this is what this podcast is all about. He is qualified, very qualified in his own way, just not traditionally. Though, as I was thinking of that over the intro, I was like, imagine I just put somebody on blast like that. Like, you are way more qualified. Get out of here. That would be such a flip for what the world is. You're too qualified to be on this podcast, but uh, I'm not a mean person. That's too mean. That's so mean. But you know, he's not as qualified as he sounds. And we're gonna get into that. But then of course, we're also gonna get into he's doing amazing things because he's really qualified. I know, it's confusing. We'll dive deeper 
we'll lay it all out. It'll all make sense very soon. Ethan is a gem of a human being. Please go listen, go listen, go follow, go follow him and listen to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. It presents specific environmental issues and topics in a digestible and very fun format. It is a delight to listen to. I love it. And sometimes we need a good laugh when the world is burning. Eh? Are you ready? Let's go. We have champions from every continent, so please, everyone, a name tag. Welcome, Ethan, to the You're Not Qualified podcast, and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Courtney. So, Ethan, you are the founder and host of a climate change-centered podcast, The Sweaty Penguin, which has won grants, you've become a PBS partner, and you've seen some pretty impressive download numbers. So I'm really curious, why are you unqualified for what you're doing? Just lay it out there. Sure. I think, first off, I feel unqualified just by nature of being a 22-year-old. I think that has its pros and cons. Obviously, young people are becoming a larger and larger part of the climate change conversation, but at the same time, going into a negotiation with PBS as a 22-year-old asking for money is a little daunting. Certainly something I did not expect to be doing at this age. Also just like hiring employees and contractors and paying taxes for a business and all that kind of stuff. I think also my education and all that sort of was the perfect setup for me to be doing this. But talking to a new professor every single week from around the world about climate change, I am learning so much. But at the same time, it's daunting to be branding myself as the person you can trust with the facts and the science as a 22-year-old who just has a bachelor's degree in environmental analysis and policy. So I'm sure we'll get into this a lot more, but I think largely it's just being so young and having no prior podcasting experience going into this that uh, has made it feel a little daunting, but I have hopefully been able to overcome that. Yeah, I I think you have. (laughs) Well, like you're at least well on your to being successful because you're building an amazing brand. Ethan is being modest. Let's break down exactly how popular and amazingly successful The Sweaty Penguin is. So The Sweaty Penguin has released 80 plus episodes and the topics range from fracking to jellyfish to sharks to sea ice, climate change impact things. They have almost 12,000 downloads, probably more now as of the recording of this episode, and they've showcased the work of professors from 10 countries across five continents, and they've won three grants and they're a PBS partner. We'll get a little more into the PBS partner part and what that means in a little bit later in the episode. You can find The Sweaty Penguin on any major broadcasting platform. So Ethan, highly accomplished podcaster with The Sweaty Penguin, uh, all at 22 years old, and it's amazing. So go listen now anywhere that you get your podcasts. You learned about climate change then as a teenager, and 
I am 33 or 22, so I have 10 years on you. And when I was a teenager, it was just being talked about, but nothing serious. But especially when I was a young kid, it was like on my, not on my radar, not on my parents' radar. We were just like happily living in the 90s, watching Power Rangers and Blue's Clues. But when you were a teenager, you were very upset, but you didn't really know how to mobilize. Is that right? Yeah, I think I was scared, but I could not bring myself to be interested in it or find it enjoyable to learn about. I was going to college at the, or I was applying to colleges for film and television, which I ended up doing a dual degree with that in environment. Mm -hmm. But I always felt like going into that field, I needed a story to tell. And I felt like climate was such an important story, but it just wasn't interesting to me. An interesting if cryptic response. And I think it really took getting into college and forcing myself to take a couple environmental classes to start to see what was stopping me from being interested in it. I think it was just the fact that it's so overwhelming to read about. It can be depressing. And also oh, yeah. the issues are so highly politicized. You have the politics all intertwined with the science and the facts. And I really needed to see from experts how the problems in the science are one thing and we can get into that. And then the solutions you can really just approach from a whole variety of different perspectives. That sort of propelled my philosophy on how to communicate environmental issues. I think that's what our podcast has been able to do very differently and what ultimately engaged me in it. So I hope it can engage others. Yeah, you approach it from a very fun way. Like uh, it can be entertaining. Climate change can be entertaining. Boy, that knock to the head must have been harder than I thought because I'm saying crazy things that I don't even understand. What's your tagline again for the sweaty uh, penguin? Our official tagline is Antarctica's hottest podcast. Oh, yeah. We also <laughs> often use the phrase, sometimes climate change is a laughing matter. Yeah, that, I think that's the one that I saw. And it can be, it should be, because you probably have introduced it to people who were in your boat before, I'm assuming, that were just not interested in talking about it because it just started fights at the dinner table or it is, it's so daunting. Like, we don't know what the hell to do. Like, we don't have any clue what to do. So is that your aha moment then for, I think that this could be something lighter and then Sweaty Penguin came from that? Sweaty Penguin originally came, I had run my high school satire publication. I also ran my college satire publication, but coming out of high school, I really wanted to just continue satirical writing. And I was also trying to force myself into environment. And so I thought, let me just try writing some satire articles. Um, so I made a blog called The Sweaty Penguin that mm -hmm. later became the podcast after I realized that onion style headlines about environmental news weren't gonna work since no one follows environmental news. So they didn't get the jokes. Why so serious? So that's where Sweaty Penguin originated from. But I think, I just thought that being able to make environmental issues more entertaining could be a path to engage more people to make it a little less overwhelming and depressing. And having done comedy writing for however many years, that 
just seemed the easiest route for me to take. Obviously, climate change doesn't seem like the easiest thing to write comedy about, and sometimes it's hard, but that's how I knew how to entertain people. So that's what I did. You know, at least it's not going anywhere. Climate change is our reality. So you have a lot of material, at least. (laughs) No, people always ask, oh, are you worried you're going to run out of topics? I'm like, Mm -hmm. no. (laughs) Even from day one, I was not worried about that. And certainly we have no shortage. Oh, man. I wish we did. But we do not. Every day there's more sea level or fires or, yeah, tornadoes, which I I guess you had an episode like that might not be climate change, those recent tornadoes. Yeah, Um, we have not demonstrated a link between tornadoes and climate mm. change. Oh, I didn't know there wasn't one. Just period. Interesting. There could be. We just haven't demonstrated one. Tornadoes haven't changed the way hurricanes and wildfires have. We can see hurricanes and wildfires are becoming way more severe and all of that. Mm -hmm. Tornadoes, it's about the same frequency as it's always been. What's a little different, obviously, they've shifted seasonally a little bit. Like we've never seen a tornado like that in December. And they've also shifted a little bit east. So We normally think of that like Kansas, Nebraska, that area. Now it's shifted more toward the kind of Mississippi, Arkansas, Kentucky area. Is that climate change? Possibly. There's some hypotheses. But until we prove it, we just kind of have to sit back and be okay with not knowing. Obviously, that doesn't take away from the damage of these most recent tornadoes in December. That's horrific. But yeah, yeah, I I think it's... Climate change, there's enough facts out there that are wake-up calls that I try to be very careful about not just lumping everything into one category. And as of the recording of this episode, that's still the case. Did a quick Google search of the demonstrated link between tornadoes and climate change and have found that there are no direct links to climate change when tornadoes are occurring in more frequent numbers and in places where they don't typically occur. I see a lot from around mid-2019 for the last study, so I'm sure that there will be more that's coming out. There's one in December of 2021 that still says have not shown any such link and no indication that tornado frequency is attributed to climate change. But as Ethan is saying, it's uh, science changes, right? That's what science is. They're continually trying to disprove their hypotheses to prove their hypothesis. So we shall see if that changes. But I was super interested in that because I was like, well, now we have tornadoes too. And I'm from the Midwest. And I'm like, that was just my, it was my life growing up. You know, it was just such a regular occurrence. But now these people that have never seen a tornado or seeing tornadoes and in Washington just a couple months ago we had a tornado warning here and I know that's not it's not something that's never happened here but it's absolutely really rare Uh, but guys no link who knew but keep an eye on the science that might change that's probably smart but it's also if not climate change then what is it that would make that happened so out of season and so rampantly. We do see, obviously, there's much hotter air in the Gulf. And you can imagine that creates weather patterns Mm -hmm. that we might not be used to. Climate change also 
warmer air can hold more moisture, which can create more rain. So it very well could be climate. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised. Scientists are frantically looking at this right now. We just need to wait for them to do their work before we jump to that conclusion. Okay. So TBD on that. Yes. We'll stay tuned on the environmental news that nobody follows. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll read the papers for you. And there we go. Let we'll you just, all know. We'll just subscribe to your podcast. <laughs> so based on my research, at least you started the sweaty penguin literally a month into the pandemic. April of 2020, yes. which is nuts. Did you, I'm sure obviously this idea was baking before then, but did you run into any roadblocks? So the concept of the sweaty penguin was baking. Certainly I mentioned I had done that blog and then mm -hmm. that semester I was taking a course called media entrepreneurship, where the final project was going to be to create a media venture. So any business that was somehow media-based. And I really wanted to rehash this idea of the Sweaty Penguin. I thought it was just such a cool brand, but I didn't know how to do it. Then quarantine hit. I suddenly had free time for the first time in years. What? And I was just in a YouTube dive with some John Oliver and Hassan Minaj and whoever. And I realized that this was the way to do this comedy environment thing I was envisioning mm. to create a podcast. They're not podcasts, but I certainly could not have done a web series in quarantine. I use a podcast, but do that sort of late night comedy style setup where I pick an issue, talk about the problems, talk about possible solutions, and just incorporate a bunch of jokes that way. And so I tried just writing one in March, had a really tough time with it. I realize now why those teams have 40 writers on their staff, but I finally started to figure out what they would look like. And I started to bring on, we had about a four person team at the beginning, which is now up to 11. And yeah, we launched in April, 2020. So it really was our quarantine hobby out of boredom that we thought would last a couple months and we're still going today. And growing, going, growing. How did your schooling prepare you then? You said you did environmental analysis. That's got to be at least really good for the research part of what you're doing. Yeah. So my, when I lay out my curriculum, it was the perfect setup for this. I did a dual degree with film and TV and environmental analysis and policy. And I got a minor in innovation and entrepreneurship. So the environment background has been a huge help. This could really play into transferable skills, but in a more academic approach. If you remember at the beginning, Ethan was like, I don't feel qualified because I have never ran a podcast before. I am not a climate change expert and I am 22 years old. So trying to get funding for basically a passion project that I think is a really great idea and a way to bring climate change conversation to people that might be really overwhelmed or sick of hearing about it. I think it's a great idea, but I'm 22 and I don't know how to get this on the table. And I, I am asking PBS, which is a huge broadcast network station for money. It's a daunting thing. Right. But now he's telling us, okay, I looked at my background 
and I find these hidden gems of the reason why I'm actually, I was set up for this. And it wasn't immediately clear to him. And while a lot of the, the stuff that he had in terms of like a television background is not directly applicable to podcasting, it's got a lot of transferable skills in there, I bet you. So he is much more qualified than he originally thought. I think that it, it might just drill even down farther into, oh, I'm so young, but I want to stress to everybody that if you have a great idea and you have a great business approach idea to that idea, go for it regardless of your age. 22 years old, that is fine. 15 years old, that is fine. People change the world at every age. They can be creeping up to 100. They can be barely into their teens. If you look at history, people of all walks of life, all races, all ages have changed the world. Don't let it stop you. Just don't let it stop you. You can do it, and if you are younger and afraid and listening to this, really take to heart Ethan's message because, yes, he has a big uh, factor in terms of schooling helped him a lot, but he was afraid because he's young. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just go for your dreams. I think I don't already know the intricacies of every issue, Obviously, I know it for ones that I was particularly interested in during my college coursework, but I do have a good overall framework of just how the environment works, not just scientifically, but also economically, politically, sociologically. So I can go into a topic like sharks or like coffee and have a sense of what to look for. I can expect that Maybe sharks are affected by ocean acidification or changing temperatures or overfishing. And I can go down those paths and then put together the research from there. It also helps with figuring out solutions that might not already be there. I think very often when we see solutions journalism, it's more about existing solutions and, oh, this new startup is doing X, Y, Z, or this city just passed this policy. I like to think of solutions that are not being done. I feel like if a solution is already in place, it's not a solution because the problem still exists. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe it's a pilot program or just something that needs to scale. But then I'm going to talk about why hasn't it scaled yet and what needs to change. Mm -hmm. So I like to think of solutions that just are not happening. And I think that's where my education plays a big role also. Yeah. One of the episodes that I'm most fond of, one is the sharks, like I mentioned to you before recording, but then also I love the policy one because that's one thing that's incredibly frustrating for me as somebody that is passionate, I would say passionate enough about environmental causes that policy is such an important way to get things done, but it's also such a snail pace way to get things done. And your perspective on the reasoning behind that and the fact that policies are pretty much set in stone and it needs to get it right, that 
they take so long. It's, it's, it doesn't make it less frustrating, but did, is that like also the kind of research that it's like tons of research that you do for episodes? Is that on you? So my team has a few people who are researchers and we're actually shifting our writing process a bit. How it used to work is a researcher would create an outline for the episode. So they would do probably about six hours or so of research and lay it out for me. And then I would take what they put together and draft the script. And in the fall, I had a couple team members start going in and adding jokes. I used to do all that myself and I decided to delegate that in the fall. But now we're shifting where I'll have a researcher pair up with one of my comedy people and the researcher will actually write a draft of the episode. We'll do a Zoom meeting first to plan it and they'll write out a draft without jokes. Although they're actually pretty funny. They're starting to add some jokes themselves, which is really fun. And then the comedy person will go in, add jokes, try to leave some comments as well. And then I'll take it from there and clean it up. So that's been a load off my back that we're kind of transitioning to do it that way. I'm sorry. I feel like there was another part of that question that I may there, have I didn't ask an exact question. I realized that besides that last one, but what I really am curious about along with that is you mentioning that climate change is such a political issue and moving away from that is helpful for getting other people at the table to talk about it, but policy is political. So how do you think those two are married? Yeah, and I talk about policy a bit in the podcast. Ultimately, you're right, policy is possibly one of the best tools we have, even with it being a snail-paced tool, as Mm -hmm. you say. I think it has the potential to affect a lot of broader change, for lack of a better word. So I think that the way we approach it is I'm not going to tell you what policy is the right policy to do. I'm going to offer a variety of options and I'll discuss the pros and cons of them. So for any problem, there might be a more regulatory solution. There might be a more market-based solution. Sometimes there's even a solution where if you took away some regulations, it might open up opportunities for people to do various things. A prime example is fossil fuels have a lot of subsidies and you could get rid of those, save taxpayers money and move energy in a greener direction. So things like that, I'll propose some options, discuss pros and cons. And I really want the listeners to think about it and see what do I like? What do I not like? And ultimately, if that's the conversation we're having, then we're making progress. Because right now it's very often just is this a problem? To what degree is this a problem? And I'd much rather be debating the intricacies of policy because then we'll get something done. Yeah. And people can make an informed decision. Yeah. And that's a fun conversation to have. I I do that sometimes. And I don't know if it's fun for everyone, but at least for me (laughs) talking about, oh, is this tax going to work or like that, I think is way more fun than just, oh crap, this glacier is (laughs) melting. Very amusing. Yeah, that's a big, that's, well, the big reason that I started this podcast is because I really like having really off the wall, deep conversations about 
stuff that people, a lot of people don't care about. Mm-hmm. It, I'm like, if I could literally pick out people, that's what they talk about all the time. And then I could just talk to them about it, but record it for other people. That's like fulfilling a need in me. So I totally understand that. Going back to your age, because I talked about this on the episode that just aired about being an author. She's very young and you are very young. And I don't think that age should be a blocker for making significant change, especially in your own life. Like you are just as qualified as somebody that's 10 years older than you. But do you find that ageism is a problem in what you're doing? Are people like you're just too young to be talking about this seriously or anything like that? Yes and no. I think not in the sense that people don't trust me. Although I think that's in part due to the fact that our audience does skew younger, I'd say over half or in the 18 to 27 range. So I don't know if you played my episodes to someone in their fifties, it would go over as well. I try to be very reliable and communicate in a way that anyone would engage with. So I would hope so, but I don't know. That's certainly a possibility. Mm -hmm. I think the roadblocks come more from just, I don't know if it's feeling the confidence or getting confidence from others, but running a business and growing a business and needing to seek out money to do that and needing to feel confident coming to a podcast like yourself and saying, Hey, I think I would be a qualified guest to talk to your audience that kind of thing, I feel a little more conscious of my age. And I appreciate you saying that people of any age should feel qualified. And I do agree with that. But I think that's where I feel like I need to sell myself and sell people on my reliability and qualifications a little more than I might if I were 10 years older. Do you have any people that are around your age that are similar in terms of like the success that they're seeing? What do you mean? Like that I know or that? Like personally that have their own really successful podcast or something? Certainly I know people or know of people who are doing similar things. Mm -hmm. Not quite. I don't know anyone who's a PBS partner per se. I know plenty of people though who are very successful for Mm -hmm. our age and I would say even more so than I am certainly on TikTok like the way that so many people my age and younger than me have hundreds of thousands of followers that's certainly something I strive to be able to do and I'm paying a lot more attention now to some of the people in the climate movement who are very successful and how I can maybe connect with these people or just learn from what they're doing. I wouldn't consider myself a activist per se, or even a, I don't even know if I would use the word environmentalist. I think journalist would be the Mm. better word. I feel like I'm just presenting facts and those facts I'm sure will compel people to want to uh, preserve the climate, but that's, my goal is just to inform people. I'm not trying to call people to action in any way. So I think I'm providing a very different thing than most people my age in the movement, but I still am blown away by the success of many people my age and younger and hope to achieve some of that someday. 
Yeah. Are you on TikTok? Is the sweaty penguin on TikTok? Yeah, we're on TikTok. I think we have 20 followers or something. We just (laughs) launched it very recently, but we actually just brought someone on our team who knows animation, which I hope will open up some new doors for us on TikTok. And right now it's, I still think it's cool as it is right now. I I think I'm like one year too old to understand TikTok. So that makes me, yeah, nine um, years too old, (laughs) but I, I feel that way. Yeah. But luckily we have some I'm actually, I think the third oldest person on our team. So luckily we have some younger folks who can step in and help me out with that. Excellent. Maybe I'll just look for somebody younger to ask to make them on the per episode basis or something. When it comes to uh, hiring, I certainly have never felt like age was a qualification. I specifically, the last round of hiring we did was looking for like college sophomores. I felt like we just needed an even younger perspective as young as we are to do better in this social media world. And also knowing where I was at that point in college, I was like, if I had an opportunity to work on this team at that age, that would have been so great for me. And I would have been able to contribute a lot to it. We hired three new people who are that age. And I think that's going to be a big benefit for us. Why specifically sophomore? I was looking like sophomore, junior. Part of it was also that we have a lot of college seniors on our team. And I knew that some would probably be parting ways with us once they get a full-time job. Others are likely going to stick with us. And I hope we can get the money to offer them uh, full-time jobs someday. But In the meantime, I wanted to be sure that we had some younger folks on our team too, because it really is just the perfect job to have in college to put a few hours a week into a podcast and help it grow. Great for a resume too. Yeah. Really great. For sure. Yeah. Like extracurricular. That's perfect. So I really want to talk about the PBS thing. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's really cool that you have them. Would you say as a partner? Yeah. Okay. How did that come about? Did you approach them? Yeah. So I had, this is through the Parallel Promise initiative on climate change. PBS has three multi-platform initiatives, that one on climate, one on poverty and opportunity in America, and one on hate and extremism. And they're all housed in WNET, which is the New York affiliate. So I had interned with multi-platform initiatives in the summer of 2019, and that was a really great experience. I learned a lot, did a lot with Peril and Promise, as you can imagine. And what I think was valuable, I learned what they really like to do is partner with outside content creators to uh, develop content for them and distribute that content through pbs.org and their social media and all that. And I knew they were uh, a little lighter on content during the pandemic, and we were developing a weekly podcast. And after maybe 30 episodes or so, I reached out, I think it was January of last year, so about a year ago. And I was like, hey, remember me? We're making this podcast. I think it would be a good fit for you. I know you need content. We need money. Let's talk. That is lovely. And we met and put together a licensing agreement and started in 
April of last year. So I guess it would be about eight, nine months now. And I think it's been really great for both of us. We've been able to provide them a consistent source of weekly content and they have allowed us to go from complete bootstrapping to, I always say, treading water, not at a place yet where I can pay myself or do this full time, but we can pay our team members, we can cover our production costs, and we can hopefully use this to propel to the next stage. Does Parallel Promise have other podcasts then? So Parallel Promise itself does not. There may be one in development, though I'm probably not supposed to get too into that. Chasing the Dream is the Poverty and Opportunity Initiative. They have a podcast called Attribution. And I think Exploring Hate may be working on one, but I think right now it's just us two. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So it's, uh, what would you say that reach is? Um, it's hard to say. I think obviously being on pbs.org is a big uh, yeah. boost. I don't know how much it affects our audience numbers per se, certainly. I know before the partnership, we hit 5,000 downloads about when it started, 5,000 all-time downloads. We crossed 10,000 maybe a month or so ago. Now oh, I think we're over 13,000. That's awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So certainly it's helped us grow. It could be in part by our own doing. Certainly, I'm sure it's got to be a combination because someone finding a new podcast and seeing the PBS name certainly draws some credibility. But at the same time, I know they've been a big help and I'm sure more and more they'll be putting ad revenue in to help it grow further. Yeah. The the demographic that I know of PBS is usually much younger, but I suppose that's the PBS station because I like, like it's ringing in my head for kids like you. Quick correction. I was very wrong here. And the PBS stations use the made possible by viewers like you. Thank you. And it's more prominent, I guess, maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s that I would see that on PBS programs for, you know, this has been made possible by viewers like you. Thank you. But not kids like you. However, a lot of things that I watched as a kid were on PBS. So I think that's where I got that from. All right, back to it. But the... Obviously, your podcast, you said, is geared towards a little bit older, and you do have some pretty good humor in there. Like, every time any, like, 69 percentages come on, there's, like, some snickering and, like, ball ball drop comments. So the demographic then, how do they separate the two? Is it, like, web-based versus, like, TV-based? PBS's main demographic is actually 65 and up. No way. Okay. When you think about like your PBS NewsHour and your Amanpour and your All Arts and American Masters, those are oh. very much for older audiences, at least what they're geared towards. I'm sure many people would find them entertaining. I think PBS Kids is obviously what you're thinking of, which yeah. is certainly a big part of their programming as well. And your Arthur and so many great kids shows on PBS. Mm-hmm. Sesame Street obviously got yep a lot from PBS. So yeah, those are probably their two main target audiences, but certainly they're doing content for in between as well. And 
it's certainly a challenge within the company to learn how to communicate to especially folks in our age rate age range the gen z's and millennials yeah we're all on instagram and tiktok and we're going on our streamers none of us even have cable anymore so how do you reach that audience as public television those are challenges that they're working through and i think that these multi-platform initiatives are at the cutting edge of that mm. they're certainly in between those two age ranges we talked about being digital initiatives on more intellectual content. And so as the sweaty penguin, I think we've been able to provide a piece of content that folks around my age in the 18 to 27 range are going to like, because people my age, I'm sure they know what PBS is, but certainly it's not Mm -hmm. They're not typing in pbs.org and clicking around. So I hope that we've been able to uh, make some inroads into that age range for Peril and Promise. Yeah, it's definitely still a household name, but I would agree it's not as prevalent in your everyday, like every day after school, coming at home and watching PBS, that sort of generational thing. And now that I think about it, I think it's for viewers like you, not for kids like you. And then it's like a thanks. Yes. Okay. But they do have PBS. And PBS also runs largely on donations, like you're saying. I think certainly it makes some sense that an older demographic would be where they would prioritize. But Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a good thing that they're reaching somewhere in between young kids and older people. Yeah. That's really awesome. It also reminds me of Mrs. Doubtfire. You've Mm -hmm. seen that movie where he has the little segment on a public television show about the, he like plays dinosaurs and stuff like that. This is how you make dinosaurs? No. This is how you play God. Which is also a fun idea to have just so many segments. The Sweaty Penguin then, what would you say is next? I know that you have big dreams, like to pay yourself. Like that's our dream, right? That's the dream. (laughs) But what else is there? Oh, podcasters. Yeah. In terms of the actual company, I really envision not just a podcast, but a media company slash news outlet that is creating environmental content that is less overwhelming and politicized and more accessible and fun. So in the future, we're in the very early stages of a website redesign, which I think I hate using the word BuzzFeed because the content is not that, but we're going for a look that sort of allows people to feel very engaged and can upvote and comment and have some quizzes on there and allow people to just have fun learning about the environment. I think so that'll be a lot more written content. We also are working on producing or starting to develop a second podcast called Tip of the Iceberg which I've released a few episodes of so far. And those would basically be, I break down a piece of environmental news that just came out with a much shorter comedy monologue. And then we answer a question from the audience. So that is another way we can get our listeners more engaged. Ultimately, the goal is to provide that content, but provide it to allow people to feel comfortable 
engaging with the environment and in particular engaging with people they might disagree with. That I think is a big part of where environmental policy and even policy in general has had a tough time is actually just talking to people we don't agree with. So if our content can inspire that, which I think it's geared to, then that would be a big win for me. Yeah, I do love that you really drive home. Be patient with people, see other people's viewpoint, have the conversation, don't shy away from it. It's, it's really important to empower people to do that because it is, even if you try to step away from it being polarizing, it's still polarizing. Yeah, definitely. We have done, we haven't done any super recently, but we've done a few bonus episodes where I've had on two guests my age who are not like environmental people. One is more liberal, one is more conservative. They'll pick a past episode to listen to, and then they talk about it and I'll moderate the conversation, but they really just talk about the issue and what they found interesting and sort of start discussing solutions. And very often they, I was going into those feeling, okay, if they agree on the problem, that's a job well done. What I've found is they come in already on the same page as to what the problem was, just having listened to the episode. And then by the end, they're agreeing on solutions, which I'm like, okay, just play this in Congress and we're all set. But obviously two people is easier than a hundred. But I think the fact that we've had such success in doing those conversations makes me really optimistic. Yeah. I feel like all we have is optimism. All we should have is optimism these days. The, so the goal of your podcast then, as you said, is not to necessarily inspire direct action. It's to bring them environmental news. And I'm curious about the reasoning behind that. Cause a lot of at least what I listen to, it's, this is the news. And then here's the little bits that you can do today or like in the next week with your family. Was that a very conscious decision not to have like action-based approach? Yeah, I think it all goes back to what I was saying about just feeling overwhelmed reading environmental news. I think when you put what the problem is and what you can do in the same sentence. One of those is a fact, one of those is an opinion. And ultimately it just starts to get jumbled in your head. So I really make a conscious effort to separate the problems from the solutions. And it's not like there's an ad break in between the two segments, but I'll very clearly be like, all right, so where do we go from here? Or something like that. And I I don't know. I wanted to provide something different from what's already out there. And I think that is out there and there are people who engage with it. And I think that's fantastic. Certainly I now are, I'm willing to engage with it a lot more to learn and try to communicate things in my own way, but I wanted to provide something different. And I hope that the sweaty penguin can be a introduction for people where you can listen to us, learn about these issues And then if you want to learn more, I definitely recommend subscribing to more news sources than us. And hopefully with the knowledge we can provide, you'll feel a little more equipped to read that type of stuff and be able to discern, okay, here are the facts, here are the opinions, here's how to react and interpret this. Yeah. 
Maybe it will inspire more action if you're not telling people what to do directly to, and they can just say, oh, this seems like something that I could change yeah. or help. Yeah. Yeah. There's a part of one of your episodes that really was like, I sat there for a second after hearing it and I was like, I never would have thought optimistically about that. And I think it was the shipping lanes and the fact that there's less ice oh, yeah. in the Arctic. And so that means that there's less fuel spent having to navigate ice and getting faster to the destination. And that's like a fascinating way to say, okay, this is a problem, but this is also optimism. What, what do you think you're like the most optimistic about in terms of climate right now? Yeah, to give context, uh, that was a listener question about would uh, the melting of the Northwest Passage be a good thing for the climate because there would be shorter ship shipping routes. And that's correct. That exactly what you said and more power to that person for noticing the nuance of that issue. My gut reaction was, oh boy, if that also is a big problem though. No problemo. And where my mind went is not just thinking about the ice melting, which that's a problem, but there's a layer of sort of soil called the permafrost. And I apologize to any climate scientists if I explain this poorly off the top of my head, but there's this layer called the permafrost that has a lot of carbon in it. I think in the whole world, there's over a trillion tons of carbon stored in the permafrost, which is even more a than lot. there is in the atmosphere. When the ice melts, the permafrost also melts and leaks out that carbon. So when you think about that much ice in the polar ice caps melting, think about how much carbon that's now releasing into the atmosphere, which then um, spurs even more climate change, which then leads to more ice melting and this cycle continues. There's other aspects of it too. Obviously folks who are, a lot of the people who live up there are indigenous and they're not too thrilled with the idea of more ships coming through their communities. So there's a lot of cons, but certainly that is a valid pro to point out. And I was glad that person noticed that and brought that up. I hadn't thought of it that way before either. I know there's another part to that question. I went on a rabbit hole. But there's also the, the nuance that if it's easier to get through, then more ships are going to do it. So mm -hmm. will it just cancel out the pro of less emissions because more ships are going anyways? even though the routes are shorter. It really gets your wheels spinning. Yeah. I remember now your other question was just oh. where I find optimism. Oh, yes, um, yes. Yep. I think it's really about how you frame the problem. So that episode where I answered that question, the main segment was about the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica, which the... Scientists have just discovered cracks on the ice shelf that's holding this glacier back from falling into the ocean. So the ice shelf is eroding, it's starting to crack, and that can spiderweb out, and the ice shelf collapses into icebergs. That's not a problem in itself because the ice shelf is already submerged in the ocean. It doesn't matter if it's one piece or a hundred pieces. What matters is this Thwaites Glacier that it's holding back, which is completely on land. It's the size of Florida and it will fall into the ocean 
right behind. Okay, so the Thwaites Glacier, that's spelled T-H-W-A-I-T-E-S Glacier, it's considered the Doomsday Glacier, which is super fun. Hasta la vista, baby. But that's because it's in danger of collapse, as Ethan is describing. It's as big as Florida, and its collapse is ominous news for cities like New Orleans, New York, and Bangkok. And this is from a Fortune.com article. What glaciologists have noticed is that the breaking of the ice won't likely occur for another three to five years, but any rapid acceleration in the pace of sea level rise would only happen in the years and decades after that. So there's time to prepare, potentially, though the effects of it will be pretty catastrophic. And as we see already in a lot of places in the world, flooding is just a part of life. Now, um, New Orleans, I know, has seen quite a bit of flooding a lot, you know, due to hurricanes and levee breaches. When I lived down there for just a little bit, I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana for a couple of years. And I remember New Orleans, a big conversation was the sea level rise even then. And that was almost 10 years ago. And they were very concerned because the way, and I'm going to butcher this, but the way that the coastline is, there's lots of swamp and lots of water that's not brackish, right? And there's foliage that are helping with keeping the coastline intact but because the sea level rise is happening and it's you know salt water this water is becoming brackish and those plants can't survive so what they do have in place for their erosion of land this foliage is not able to survive so it's it's a catch-22 and i actually don't know what they're doing now but i'm sure that they're doing something for helping the inevitable and helping people live in the inevitable of the sea level rise. So this doomsday glacier, the Thwaites Glacier, is a big part of that. And it's just going to be part of the future in terms of that sea level rise. But it's definitely scary that something so huge is slowly chipping away, not even that slowly, within the next few years, and then we'll see the potential effects, you know, decades after. But if you're more interested in that, and if you're super interested in what's happening with coastline erosion and water level rise in different places in the world, then I encourage you to look it up because it's pretty fascinating, very disturbing, very sad stuff. But it's also the optimistic side of you can see what people are doing to try to help the plants and animals survive this and help humans survive what will be soon our new normal. So you think about, (laughs) I'll get there. Um, So yeah, you think of a ice cube the size of Florida falling into the ocean and that creates a big problem. And I think that really shook my the way I was communicating for the last two years because I really would try to be super optimistic and then I heard this research and it sort of reminded me like all right this is happening in the next five years and 
It's not a, how can we stop this? That's happening. Climate change is here. We also see it with hurricanes and wildfires and all that. But ultimately what I realized is we shouldn't be framing this as how can you stop climate change? Because that's just not how climate change works. But we can frame it as how do we keep climate change under control? How do we keep it to something where we are living a life in 50 years that is as similar to now as possible, or at least the things that we like about now as possible. And that is certainly a feasible and achievable goal. We can bring down our emissions as much as we can to prevent things from getting even worse than they would be if we just or than they would be today. We can certainly find ways to adapt to climate change, whether it be putting up seawalls and jetties to prevent too much sea level rise, or whether it be setting up insurance right for storms, or whether it be Mm -hmm. drought-resistant crops to make sure we have food security. And then we can also look to geoengineering solutions, things like sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it. That can be fancy mechanical things, but it can also be trees and mangroves and sharks, sharks, exactly. So lots of different paths out there that I think are very achievable. I also think they're very economically feasible. Very often there's this climate economy dichotomy out there where people think climate action is going to hurt the economy. I've found almost every time it's the exact opposite. First off, you think about the amount that these hurricanes cost to clean up or the wildfires cost to clean up, not just in lives and injuries and healthcare costs, but property damage, all of that. Certainly avoiding that would save a lot of money. But even in the short term, solar and wind are quickly becoming some of the cheapest energy sources out there. Transitioning there just makes a lot of economic sense. Um, But climate change is also about just being efficient and being smart. If we can have heat that runs better, if we can have a car that runs on less gas mileage, like those things save us money and help the climate. You can look at it from a lot of angles, but certainly the two are not against each other. Yeah. And there's little things that you can do in your everyday life that is like you said, you don't drive a car with less gas, but I just drive an electric car, live in an area that gets their power or even have like solar panels on your house, generate yeah. your own electricity. Yeah. Oh, certainly there are things you can do. And yeah. even like with that example too, the climate impact of driving your current car to the end of its life is usually lower than just going out and buying an electric car mm. because- Think about the amount of parts that go into making a new car. Mm-hmm. So there are these nuances like that where it's, oh, you wouldn't think of it that way, but that also saves you money. You don't have to go buy a new car. That especially plays out when you think about we waste 40% of our food. If we're a little more conscious about that, save money and help the environment. Fast fashion is a big issue where producing clothing creates a lot of emissions. Also a ridiculous amount of water goes into that. I'm shocked by those numbers but if you buy a 
$20 shirt as opposed to five $5 shirts that disintegrate in the laundry. You need to save a lot of money and help the client. So all these different scenarios you can go through. There's hope yet. We talked a lot about it, but like in a summary nugget form, why are you qualified, Ethan? Why I am qualified. Why are you qualified? (laughs) I think my education has been a big part. I also think I'm just someone that when I have a goal, I really push myself to do it as big as I can. I can go back through my whole <laughs> life story. Yeah. But when I was in uh, fourth grade, I decided when I grew up, I was going to open a restaurant called Brownies. My last name is Brown. And I got a bunch of my friends and family and was like, hey, you're going to work at my restaurant. And what jobs do you want? And I learned very basic web design to create a website for the restaurant. And I was watching every Food Network show to learn how to cook. So actually adorable. (laughs) Yeah. So I did that for a couple of years. In middle school, I was very into math and this is a bit more of a rabbit hole, but I think it is interesting. I, I had seen, my dad showed me this uh, Ted talk from a guy, Arthur Benjamin, who is Uh, terms himself a mathemagician. He's also a professor at Harvey Mudd College, but he does these mental math stage shows where he'll do things like multiplying big numbers in his head, figuring out the day of the week of any date in history, all sorts of fun math things. And I thought this show was like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And so my dad then found out he wrote a book teaching how to do all these mental math things. So he got me the book. He always says I disappeared into my room for two months and I read the book and practiced all these techniques and I performed mathematics at my school talent show. And then my dad sent that to Dr. Benjamin and ended up connecting with him and learning a lot more from him and ultimately performed a mental math show for five years. Oh my God, Um, that's so cool. And I got to do a couple TEDx talks myself. I went to Las Vegas and India and New York and Chicago. Oh my God, sometimes I just love the internet so much. So I just did a quick search for Ethan Brown TEDx talk and I found this gem from 2013 where he's talking about his mathematics and he's very funny and a young Ethan. He's 13 years old in this video. I will absolutely link it in the show notes. I don't know how he'd feel about that, but you guys could all easily find this anyways. And it's it's for public consumption on the internet. It's only about 13 minutes long, the video, and I think you will love it. There's a couple more as well, um, but I'll just link this one to get you started. When I also got to go on a television show and do something, that was an amazing experience. I later realized once I got to higher level math in high school that I don't like this anymore, I'm out. What, she killed him with mathematics. What else could it have been? But Mm -hmm. that was a big part of how I learned how to combine education and entertainment. And I think that also ultimately writing bits for my show taught me a lot about just trying to be funny and be lighthearted. Ultimately, that as random of an experience as it seems, has, I think, played a role in the way I'm communicating about the environment today. Totally different form of entertainment and totally different thing to educate about, but a lot of similar concepts between the two. But every time I take on a new project, I really just put 
everything into it and make it way bigger than it ever should have been. And I think this, I hope will be my biggest endeavor yet. I hope so too, because it's such an, an awesome concept and I think it's super entertaining. There's just nothing else like that out there. It's so cool. If you had to give advice then for anybody else, like maybe somebody else wants to start an educational podcast and they are like literally, I don't even know, January of 2020 from when you started, what would you tell them? I think I would say, first off, just ask for help. Mm -hmm. That was a big part of what allowed the sweaty penguin to take off and continue that I knew from the get-go, I know nothing about podcasting, but I have a friend who does. And so I reached out and asked him if he wanted to be a part of it. And part of that is thinking about the other person and how will they benefit from being part of this project. And that was really how I led each time I went to people in that early stage of, hey, I know this is just an idea right now, but I feel strongly about this mission that I think you can help with. And I don't even remember exactly what I said, but certainly trying to put it in those terms. Yeah, that'd be my biggest piece of advice. And then really just think through the idea thoroughly. Like your podcast is a great example of one where you've solidified, this is what we're going to talk about. You've started and ended with talking about qualifications and it leads to such a fun and interesting conversation. I get a little, I don't want to say frustrated, but there's over a million podcasts now and seeing that many. Oh my God. Yeah. And when I see people start a podcast just without any forethought as to what the, what value this podcast brings to this very large market, I've, I was always the one sharing the memes about, oh, this white college guy started a podcast, how ridiculous. And then I ended up being that, but I really put a conscious effort into, is this me providing value or is this me just talking to people and thinking I matter? And I really wanted to make sure we were doing something valuable. And obviously if it's just a hobby and it's something fun, then go for it. But I see another statistic was that the average podcast is only seven episodes long because people quit that quickly. And you know how hard it is to put out a podcast, especially consistently. I can't believe you do all your editing yourself. I can't even imagine doing that. I have to be very structured with my time. <laughs> I, I can imagine. And on top of a job too. For me, that was a big part of why I asked for help. I couldn't even fathom doing that. But also I think it's important to go in with a plan and feel confident that it'll be successful. So those would be my two pieces of advice. Yeah. I love the, make sure you have a a solid idea approach and then even outline it, right. Get baby steps going. And you're going to do this step. And when I was starting mine, it was trying to understand what order to do things in. Like, when do I make a website? Do I make a website after the first episode? Do I make it prior to the first episode? When do I tell people about it when I have a first episode or when it's like just baking? Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, it's really great advice and asking for help is something I'm not good at. So I'm going to take that to heart. (laughs) Hopefully and you're doing a great job yourself. So I'm sure asking for help can only take it. I just don't know who to ask, but I think that that's really important because I just need to look a little bit harder, I think, but help with editing would be great. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, I 
just feel like whenever I can find other talented people and bring them in toward a goal that I have, that's just a dream come true for me. And yeah. this last process of hiring a few new people, we got nine applicants and I only really intended to hire one person. I ended up hiring three and thankfully some things fell our way over the last month that I feel confident now that we can afford to hire all three. Ooh, yeah. But that was just such a difficult task for me to narrow down from that many amazingly talented people because I just really want to be able to work with anyone that believes in what I'm doing and wants to use their talents to help. Yeah. Yeah. Where can people find you and the Sweaty Penguin? So the Sweaty Penguin is on all your podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, all that good stuff. Also at the sweatypenguin.com, pbs.org slash Promise is our partners. Social media, we're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, though I grow cynical of that every day. And then if you want to support the show even further, we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. There you can get merch, you can get bonus content, early access to episodes, a whole bunch of cool stuff. And that is also a big part of how we're able to grow and cover our costs and run the show. So do check that out. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Supported from listeners like you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Thank you so much, Ethan, for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so okay. much for having me, Courtney. It was a really fun conversation, fun to just kind of reflect on our journey and those mix of feeling like I deserve to be here versus the imposter syndrome that I've also felt before. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to reflect about that. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. And yours is a really powerful message though, because you do have really impressive qualifications and you still feel like an imposter. So it's just saying that nobody is immune in that way. And we all do feel it, but we're all qualified in our own way. Like you could have a whole different set of qualifications separate than what you have. And you would still be qualified because your heart's in it. And because you do the diligence and you do the research and you, you have the baked idea. I use baked a lot in this episode, but I don't, I bake. I feel like it's like going back to like pot smoking, but no, it's like I bake <laughs> goods, but yeah, it's, you're absolutely qualified, but it's really interesting to hear everybody's concepts when they feel like they're not. I'm very flattered that you felt like answering why I'm not qualified was the harder of the two. Cause for me, I feel like it would be. I would feel like it's obvious why I'm not qualified and I have to defend why I am very flattered that you felt the opposite. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like 100%. Hi friends and welcome to the end of the episode. This was another pretty long episode, so I'll keep this short and sweet. Find Ethan at everywhere he said above. I will absolutely link those in the show notes as well. And his TEDx talk for youth. That is just a glimmer of gold in the depths of the internet. I love it. I am so thankful for this conversation. We get really into the nitty gritty of a lot of climate change topics and, which I really love, podcasting. We talk about kind of the ins and outs of it. So I hope that you could get some good information from this, especially if you are looking to start your own podcast as well. Hope it's just a wealth of knowledge for you. Where can you find 
me. My name again is Courtney Heater. I have a uh, email address if you prefer to get in touch with me there. It's yn, n as in Nancy, ynqpod at gmail.com. I am on Instagram at ynqpod, on Twitter at ynqpodcast, on TikTok at ynqpod, and I have a lovely website. It's your not qualified podcast. You're not qualified podcast.com. All of my episodes are listed on the website, and you can also find them, as you know, wherever you are streaming this. So, very quick bit of trivia. So, we talked a little bit about how many podcasts there are out there. So, that really sparked my interest. And I was like, well, I wonder if we even have that data. Like, I don't know with all of the different platforms. I'm not quite sure if there's just a aggregate somewhere, but uh, what I did find on the great Google is, so most of the data out there is outdated, but it's currently over 2 million podcasts out there. 2 million people that are out there just pouring out their guts to whoever wants to listen on the interwebs. And it's incredible. I'm very proud of people for just going out there and doing it. It's it's not very easy and it can be kind of daunting and you feel like, of course, I'm not qualified for this. We all feel that way, but it's very fun. It's rewarding. You meet awesome people if you interview and you can really help people with what you talk about, right? There are a lot of really good podcasts about dating, which I love those. There's really good podcasts about true crime. I also really love those, but I'm also a woman in her 30s, so that's uh, just a woman in general, so that's kind of like par for the course, right? We all need to have all of the things in our back pocket to be able to uh, know how to defend ourselves and know what to expect, and I think that's what the draw is to that, but I love them, and there's so many people that are out there doing really great things for humanity through their voice on a platform weekly or monthly, sometimes a couple times a week. It's great. I love it. Podcasting is great. And as of April 2021, there are 48 million episodes, 48 million podcast episodes. Heckin' yowza. Yowza. All right, friends. Well, I will... Without further ado, I will not take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for listening over an hour and 10 minutes of this. I'm so thankful for you. Please get in touch, especially if you know of somebody that's a good fit. If you are a good fit, check out the social media and check out the other episodes and share and subscribe if you're on a a platform that uh, does that. But thank you so much. I am so thankful for you. And I will see you next Thursday. Bye.